God, here we are, your people, your church, meeting together in your presence. We welcome each other and we welcome you. Make yourself known to us today in new ways through our worship and our prayers and our understanding of your word and grant us your peace. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Recently, I ran across a picture of a church and a sign on it that said, Welcome to church where it's all about you. Well, today's message is called the Countercultural Church, and it's a reminder of what the church is and isn't called to be and how we can participate in such a way we can have a greater impact on the community around us. We'll get to all that in a few moments, but let's pray together before we do, shall we? Gracious God, who makes all things new, we come to you this day, having closed the door on the past year and ready to enter fully into the, the new uh, day ahead of us. We pause this morning to ponder the things that really matter, loving you, loving each other. God, you have made everything beautiful in its time, and your majesty is seen in all of creation, and yet you care for us and our hearts are encouraged. So teach us today to appreciate the moments before us <clears throat> and awaken us to your presence in this service, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Recently, I was reminded again of an interesting observation in reading about Jesus' life. And that is that among his own people and in his own hometown, Jesus encountered rejection and conflict. The New Testament Gospel of Mark suggests that people rejected him because they thought of him as an unimpressive hometown boy. Interestingly, we are given no content of his teaching on this particular day, but a report that an encounter with Jesus provoked fierce resistance, even among those who were closest to him. So I invite you to hear the words of Mark's gospel, the sixth chapter, beginning with verse one. Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. And they asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them the prophet is, without, is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then Jesus went from village to village teaching the people and he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals but not to take a change of clothes. Wherever you go, he said, stay in the same house until you leave town. But if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So the disciples went out, telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. 
I think it's interesting that Mark links this story of rejection with the sending out of the disciples, as if to say that the crisis which Jesus provoked will also afflict those who follow him. Then Jesus goes on to give his disciples some instruction on how to handle inevitable conflict. And when I read this text, I gain a simple, straightforward, and sometimes overlooked insight, and that is that Jesus provoked controversy, and his followers also provoke controversy. Something about Jesus, something in his teaching, something in his personality turned away more people than he attracted. As a preacher, I once thought about that about the worst thing in the world was for a congregation to reject something I said in a message. After all, if I were really a good preacher, I ought to be able to find some way of saying things about Jesus that people would accept and, I had, and, 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 I, and they would leave the service always feeling really blessed. And then I listened more carefully to stories like this one. Jesus, it appears, was willing to suffer rejection and was quite content to be misunderstood. Jesus preached away more people than he won. Did you ever wonder why Jesus spoke in so many parables? Some have suggested it was because he was trying to communicate with simple rural folk. So he had to tell them everything in these short stories so that they would get the point. But if that was his point, then Jesus failed because most of the people Jesus talked to didn't get what he was talking about. It would seem that Jesus must have been using parables for some purpose other than to ensure that everyone got his point. You see, he was willing to be misunderstood and even rejected because the point, was not, the point was make, that he was making was not dependent for its validity on people's acceptance. I read the story of a pastor of a small congregation who one day was visiting the supermarket in his community and he ran into a woman who only the Sunday before had visited his church with her husband and three children. And after they exchanged some pleasantries, the pastor told her how much the church appreciated her visit and how he hoped that they would return. And the woman replied, we enjoyed the service, but right now we're just shopping around for a church, a church that meets our needs. Now listen to her words and her understanding of the church in that statement. In her mind, the purpose of the church was to meet her needs. Maybe that's why you came this morning to get your needs met, I don't know. But my guess is that that's why some people get up and go to church on any given weekend to have some need in their life met by the church they attend. Sounds like an interesting statement, doesn't it? But of course we know the church wants to meet people's needs and that also begs the deeper question, which needs should we attempt to meet? And who determines which needs we will not attempt to meet? Does the church's meeting of specific needs serve a larger goal or purpose even more important than meeting your individual needs? You see, we live in a day when many people are convinced that the church should get more into marketing, as if uh, marketing what we have to offer, that the church should take its cue from business and become more consumer-oriented. Pastors are encouraged to create user-friendly worship experiences, worship in which people have their needs met. And churches should come up with programs that after they first define the needs of the people in the congregation, but in this view, worship is a product that congregations offer for consumption. 
with the primary concern being how to attract and how to satisfy more customers, or at least to keep the ones you've got. Let me use an analogy. The supermarket doesn't tell us that we should prefer romaine over iceberg lettuce, does it? Rather, the grocer discovers which products we like, which ones we buy most often, and then offers us those products more efficiently, cheaper. So when many churches decide to make a significant change to some aspect of their ministry or one of our programs, for example, a worship service time or a Sunday school program, what do we typically do? We put out a questionnaire, don't we, with lots of questions about what people think of the church or a particular ministry, what they like, what they don't like. But what if we believe that worship is not a product for consumption, like lettuce, but it's an activity that a congregation engages in to the glory and honor of God, like prayer? Say, for instance, that you tell us, as one church literally did a few years ago, say this to their pastor, they really don't want to hear a reading from the Bible or a bunch of God talk every Sunday. Now, if we refuse to offer a more appealing product by cutting out the Bible reading and the God talk, then we appear to be incredibly sensitive to the needs of our customers, don't we? But there may be reasons for not letting the customer and the customer's needs determine the shape of Sunday morning. Reasons that are, which are not merely related to our insensitivity or the traditional attitudes of the church. See, by living in a society in which most daily Choices are consumer choices. People have come to, re- to view their relationship in- to the church in the same way. In an article entitled Overcoming Consumer Christianity, Ben Sharp Jr. captures the problem in these words. He says, consumer Christianity takes the false assumptions of the consumer worldview and it dresses them up in religious garb and parades them these assumptions as authentic expressions of our faith in Christ. And yet at its heart, consumer Christianity is still the worship of the false God. The emphasis is on how an individual benefits from his or her religious involvement. We base our decisions on where to worship and how much we're gonna commit in terms of time and money on how it benefits us personally. We believe that we have a right to be in control of our local church in direct proportion to what we have invested in it. The same way we view our right to control a company based on the amount of stock we hold. As consumer Christians, we don't understand when the church makes demands on us or refuses to give us what we want. This is not the behavior consumers expect from businesses with which they do business. Likewise, in consumer Christianity, we do not assume that the body of believers with whom we worship has any right to hold us accountable as it relates to our private lives. You see, this is the culture in America that the church finds itself in in 2017. And it really requires some serious self-examination to understand just how much we have been shaped by this toxic worldview of the Christian faith. Here are some seven questions that may help to get at the heart of the matter. Do I think that, that the church should offer a menu of choices in the, in the form of various programs that appeal to me and my family? Is my decision about where I attend church based on my personal tastes and preferences 
or on the spiritual growth and nurture that I will receive? Do I see myself as primarily a person who comes to worship God and get my spiritual high for the week or should not be, and, and should not be expected to form any close relationships with other people or be in a small group? Do I operate from the assumption that the church is fulfilling its mission when it meets my needs and sings the songs that I like? Do I see the church's role as providing me a product or service like good spiritual feelings or self-help programs or children's activities or practical advice for daily living? Do I operate under the notion that I will leave when I don't feel like I'm getting my money's worth or no longer need the services of the church? Is my loyalty to the local church like loyalty to a particular business in that personal taste and preference trumps any vows that I may have made to God when I became a member or at baptism. Do you see the dilemma that the church is up against in the culture today? Consumer Christianity promises freedom and fulfillment through unlimited individual choices and getting just what we want. And yet it is actually a form of slavery to our personal desires. It wraps us in chains of greed and self-centeredness a church that offers a multitude of choices does not necessarily offer fulfillment. Rather, it encourages us to surf from one option to another, looking for something that will satisfy us while neglecting the simple truth that it is in giving ourselves away to Jesus through service to others that we find joy and meaning and blessing. See, when the church begins to talk about things like discipleship, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, it, can, it contradicts this consumer mentality. And because a disciple is one who has responded to the gospel and now under the authority of a teacher, of a master, Christ followers, for Christ followers, that's Jesus. He is our leader. In Luke's gospel, the 14th chapter, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus is speaking in hyperbole, of course, but it was meant to wake up the crowd to whom he was speaking. Some were following Jesus for what they could get out of it, maybe a meal, maybe a miracle. But when it comes to our love for Jesus Christ, we are reminded that it must outweigh every other love in our life. We are called to be all in. So here's the danger in being a consumer Christian. A consumer Christian might look at the church much like they look at a restaurant. You know, you go to a, re a restaurant because you really like but the food or the service or the price or the ambiance. So what happens if that restaurant takes your favorite item off the menu? or changes the salsa. You know, it was just perfect the way it was. Now it's too chunky or it's too spicy. What if they quit giving you those little mints with your check? Well, then as a consumer, chances are you might just start looking elsewhere for your dining needs to be met. Am I right? It's no longer meeting my needs. And since I'm paying for the meal, I'll go to the place after all that's focused on what I want. Once people come to view choosing a church in similar ways to choosing among competing restaurants, 
or brands of food or styles of basketball shoes or whatever, then enormous pressure begins to be exerted on the church to think of itself in those terms as well. And this tendency toward consumerism may be the most detrimental temptation for the church today. Now you may be thinking, but Rod, I'm not a consumer Christian. I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, let's see about that. Time to channel your inner Jeff Foxworthy. You know who Jeff Foxworthy is? It's a comedian whose famous line is what? You may be a redneck if, you know. Now you're, we're gonna try that line and, uh, about consumer Christians. If you've ever said, you know, the service was too long today, he could have said in 10 minutes what he said in 25. I'm gonna be late for lunch. You may be a consumer Christian. If you've ever said, seriously, why are there five people with microphones on stage during worship and the words of the songs on the screen? I don't need, think all that's necessary for us to worship God. You may be a consumer Christian. If you've ever said, that message did nothing for me today, what was the point in me getting up early just to hear this? You might be a consumer Christian. If you've ever said, too many people want to shake my hand, don't you know, it's, don't they know it's cold and flu season? I'm not going to church. You might be a consumer Christian. If you've ever said, they did sing a song today in church that I didn't know. Is church really the place for music that nobody's ever heard of? You might be a consumer Christian. You get the idea. I'm not saying that we should never offer constructive thoughts about how the church can improve, but I know that it's more meaningful in my mind when, when it comes, when uh, constructive thoughts and criticism comes from folks who are plugged in for serving, who are contributing in a meaningful way, rather than folks who are just consuming. See, this ministry is not mine, it's not yours. It's all about God. And personally, I'm only concerned about pleasing him in what we do. The church is about building our relationship with God and with other people, honoring God in all that we do, and worshiping him and serving him and learning about him and helping to point others to him and growing his kingdom and giving to him and growing in him. That's what we're about. Years ago, the great sociologist uh, Ferdinand Tonis criticized the role of marketing in creating a society in which there was no real community, but rather only individuals who approached others with the attitude, I give so that you will give something back to me. What I do for you, I only do as a means to affect your simultaneous previous or latest service to me. Actually and really, I want and desire only this, to get something from you in the end, and my service is the means to get it to which I naturally contribute unwillingly. What if, what if the church serves people not for what we get back from them, but because we are the people of God? What if our worship team works hard on their songs each week, not because they hope you will like it and be inspired by it, but because this team knows that we are called to be a sign a foretaste, a beachhead of God's kingdom in the world. What if I'm preaching this message not because I think it's uppermost on your list of weekly wants today, but rather because I believe this is what God wants us to hear? You see, what we get out of what we do here should not be a great concern among, among us as our faithfulness to the particular nature of God's kingdom. 
What if the greatest service the church can offer uh, the world is us being faithful and loving? Perhaps the service we offer is not necessarily what the world thinks it needs because the church is not only about meeting my needs, but about rearranging my needs. And sometimes, yes, even giving me needs I, I would never have if I had not started coming to church. Occasionally, I have preached a message that I thought was, maybe I was pretty sure might be interpreted as judgmental or maybe too intense or too critical or too prophetic, but then someone comes up to me after church and says, thanks for telling it like it is. It's rare these days that someone speaks honestly about our situation. I needed to hear that. And that kind of comment to me is amazing because we need comfort, we need reassurance, we need things like peace, but we also need truth and honesty. And when the church is at its best, we get not what we just think we need, but what God thinks we need. And that's really what we ultimately need the most. So you're thinking today, what's the point of this message? What are you trying to say, Rod? And here it is. I really believe that this congregation is on the brink of something new that God wants to do in and through us this year. I honestly believe that. I'm not totally sure what all that is, but the words of Isaiah 43, 18 and 19 have been on my mind and my heart a lot. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing, and it springs up. Do you not perceive it? In the past, I know that there have been people who have attended Redeemer for a whole lot of reasons, because socially it was perceived to be the place to be and seen by others in the community. It was the place to raise your kids and the children's and youth programs, and when the kids were gone, they were gone. It was the place where the friend, your friends came, and so whatever, people have attended for a lot of reasons. But you know what? I think that's changing. I am sensing that many of you are part of a whole new generation of believers that are seeking God and wanting something deeper spiritually for your life, and you're willing, to, you're willing for us to raise the bar of expectation, and you are going to meet it and exceed it. And you've been doing that time and time again. I see people who want to serve others in this community and beyond, and in doing so, share their passion for Jesus Christ with people who have, seem to have little hope. And I know that many more of you have begun to step up to increase giving, maybe even tithing your income. You're taking that risk. You're volunteering to be in ministry by serving on the weekend or during the week. You're participating in a small group or a Bible study so that you can learn where you're, what your heart is longing to learn. And all of that, I think, is positioning us for the new thing that God is going to do in us and through us. And while churches are busy asking what people want, we ought to be asking the deeper question, what does God want from us? What does the Lord require? That's a fundamental faith question. The church is not here to meet your needs. The church is not here to meet your needs. The church is called to be the countercultural activity of serving God in a world that does not know God or does not worship him. And most Americans today are deeply formed by the current trend of marketing that creates this desire and then encourages us to go out and spend large sums of money in an attempt to um, satisfy our ins insatiable desires. It seems that our faithfulness to the gospel would instead 
call the church to challenge that idea, to challenge the ethics of our culture and help us to see that many of those felt needs are illegitimate. Churches too often see themselves as one more social institution dedicated to fulfilling every desire of our hearts. And by catering to the whims of discriminating consumers, we encourage people to expect the church to function to function as another service agency whose purpose is to court them by providing a smorgasbord of programs and services. But instead of marketing, I believe our primary metaphor ought to be spiritual formation. We ought to be spending more time and energy worrying about how the church can form its congregation and its people as concrete embodiments of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we continue to offer a profound, even radical alternative to the dominant cultures and institutions of our day. We must not place too much confidence in our consumer ability to determine for ourselves what we really need. We can't be trusted to know what's best for us. God has graciously given us something which we could not have by our own devices, and namely that salvation in Jesus Christ, and we're here today because in our in grateful response to that gift, and we're seeking to worship the God who has given us hope, who's given us new life, and in my experience, some of us come to church for lesser reasons than that. That is, we come seeking confirmation of our preconceptions. We seek help with our problems. We, have, we, we wanna just be in fellowship with other people, and many of us can testify, thank God, that the church often turns out to be more interesting than our expectations. In worship and in the life of the church, God tends to take some of those wrong reasons and reform them, and he tends to redirect our desires and give us more than we would have ever known how to ask for. In the reading and preaching of God's word, our preconceptions will get challenged and changed. What we thought were our problems are revealed to be kind of trivial. And we are given problems we would never have met, have had before, before we met Jesus. We come seeking mere fellowship with people and we're astounded to receive fellowship with God. See, some people surely left the town of Capernaum that day after hearing Jesus preach saying, I'm sorry, but that new preacher just didn't do a thing for me. There were others in that crowd, a few who realized that Jesus was about something considerably larger than themselves, and that's the folks who began to change the world. Let's pray. God of grace and power, even in our weakness, we remember how at times your prophets were ignored and rejected and belittled and unwelcomed in the world in which they lived trusting that we too are called to be prophets. Fill us with your spirit and support us by your gentle hand that we may persevere in speaking your word and living out our faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.